Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. When I was a pastor in Texas, boy, that seems like a lifetime ago, I was uh, sent to a rural congregation in a county with more cattle and rattlesnakes than people. Now, you have to know this. I was raised a city boy in New Orleans and Dallas. I had no idea how to relate to these wonderful ranchers. Even when it came to saying hello to them, I mean, I I tend to overthink. Do I say howdy? And I thought, well, no, because that's what they say at Texas A&M, and I went to Baylor. So I'm not going to say howdy. When, when our family had been there about four months, uh, one morning I walked out of the back of our parsonage and found that the quiet Bosque River, that's usually half a mile away, was now a raging river in our backyard. Later they would call it a 100-year flood. I mean, cattle were being carried downstream. There were islands of fire ants floating downstream. Snakes were washed out of their holes, and they were, it was, it was, it was a wild day. God bless Texas, right? <laughs> so I ran back inside. I took my new boots out of the box, tore the labels off my brand-new Wrangler jeans, And I ran to where the ranchers were trying to lasso cattle from the river. Now, I had no idea what I would do to help them. And they knew it. (laughs) But I stood with these people from Bosque County. And I tried to lead these nearly drowned rescued cattle away from the flooded river after they had been lassoed out. Three days later, it's Sunday morning, and our sleepy little sanctuary was packed with people. Absolutely packed. And so I started thinking, remember, I overthink. You know, this flood could be the momentum we really need to do something as a church. I mean, all I had to do was show up in my new cowboy gear and stand with them in this crisis, and look what happened. And see, without realizing it at the time, I had just placed myself as the savior of the congregation instead of Jesus. I had placed my actions rather than the actions of the Holy Spirit as the start of what would be several years of deep discipleship in that little rural church. And I did it in the name of ministry, which makes it even worse. Our scripture passage today is an interesting account from Mark's gospel about the early days of Jesus' ministry. I mean, at this point, he only had four disciples. So so we spent the day in the town of Capernaum, teaching in the synagogue, and the people were just wowed at his teaching ability. And while he was in the synagogue, a man was there who was possessed by a demon, so what does Jesus do? He takes on the demon, and it left. 
I mean, this town had never seen anything like this. They were amazed at the spiritual authority of this man named Jesus. Mark, 21, uh, Mark 1.28 states that news of, about Jesus spread all throughout the region. I mean, Jesus' ministry was beginning well. Today we might say he had great word-of-mouth publicity. So when he got to Simon's house to spend the night, he found Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a fever. So Jesus put his hand in hers and the fever was gone. It's a beautiful account from Mark. So she gets up and begins to serve them, probably the end of Sabbath meal. He heals her, and she serves them. That could be a sermon in itself, couldn't it? So by this time, there's a crowd forming outside of Simon's house of people who are sick or demon-possessed, and Jesus healed them all well into the night. I mean, think about this. That's one long, exhaustive day for Jesus, wasn't it? But at least people were coming to him. They were being healed. In ministry, there's tired, and then there's a good tired. This day in Capernaum produced a good tired for Jesus and his four disciples. And again, we might see this as a wonderful way for Jesus to build momentum for his ministry on earth. And then we get to verse 35, and things get a little interesting. I mean, even though he ministered to people late into the night, Jesus got up, we don't know what time, 4 a.m., let's say. It's still dark. And he wandered to what Mark calls a solitary place to pray. It was a desolate place. It was a wilderness place. He went way outside of town, in the dark, where nobody was, to be all by himself to talk with God his Father. Jesus is offering us a profound lesson here. When you feel like things are going well in life or in ministry, maybe it's wise to take a step back and process with God how you're responding to it. That's what Jesus did in the middle of the night with nobody else around. So, of course, when Simon and the others woke up the next morning, they couldn't find Jesus. That's not a good way to start the day. You lost Jesus. <laughs> and from the context of our passage, another mob of people was already gathering outside the house. So the disciples take off to go find Jesus. And they finally found him. Jesus, you need to come back. Everybody in town is looking for you. It makes me wonder if this was the way that these four disciples had hoped Jesus' ministry would start. He was the talk of the town. I mean, this is how you gain momentum in ministry. But listen to me. Feasting on the praise of others is like eating every day at McDonald's. Nothing good's going to come from it. In commenting on this verse in his Catina Aria, Thomas Aquinas wrote that by going to this deserted place, Jesus was teaching us not to do anything 
that draws attention to ourselves. He writes that if we do happen to do something for God, it's best not to tell anybody about it. Be like Mary and just treasure those moments in your heart. Jesus replied, no, let's go somewhere else. I mean, if Jesus had stayed in Capernaum, it would have sidetracked his purpose for coming into the world. He came to reach everybody, not just those in that village. If he had made Simon's house his headquarters, set up an office there, he would have changed his entire focus. And he was popular in Capernaum. They loved him. They wanted Jesus to stay there. But Jesus had the discernment to know when it was time to go. In 1744, John Wesley wrote, Never spend any more time at any place than is strictly necessary. This can be difficult for us. We get settled in. We grow deep roots in a community. People love us. I mean, things aren't perfect, but they're going fine. Yet when this happens, our eyes can be on the little kingdom that we've built for ourselves rather than the true king of the true kingdom. We lose the discernment to know when it's time to go somewhere else because we become too focused on our ministry. I think there's another reason that Jesus wanted to leave Capernaum. See, in just a short time, he had become known as the holy man who could heal you. And the people came to him because of what he could do for them, not for who he was as the son of God. Perhaps Jesus knew that if he had stayed in Capernaum, they'd only be interested in how he might benefit their lives. I have to say, I worry a little bit that the North American church kind of functions this way. Come to worship, and it's going to be good for your family. Give your life to Jesus, and your life will improve. See, I don't think Jesus wants to improve our lives at all. He wants to give us a new life. Now, for those of us in this Asbury community, there's a temptation for attention. Sometimes there's a temptation to appear appear as being the most holy. Oh, well, I never miss chapel. I'm sorry. No, I can't study. I have to go to chapel. We try to out-holy each other sometimes. Maybe there's a temptation to become the most, or to be known as the most theologically reasoned. In ministry, maybe the temptation is to be known as the community healer, the best preacher within 50 miles, the pastor with the most creative ideas. But see, when we seek adulation, We're demonstrating self-love 
not love for God and others. When we're too concerned about the opinion others have of us, we're living a self-centric rather than a God-centric life. Y'all, this is nothing more than sinful pride. As my mom used to say, give me eye contact now. Holiness is not possible without humility. If the opposite of humility is pride, then the prideful person has not yet died to themselves and found themselves hidden with Christ in God, as Paul writes in Colossians 3.3. Let me ask you a question. Could, could you be in ministry if nobody ever knew your name? If you didn't have a social media presence or a podcast or someone known around the denomination of the world, could you still be in ministry? And I ask that not wanting you to think about the Sunday school answer, but the real answer, the one that's hidden deep inside of you. Thomas Akempis wrote, love to be unknown and to be considered as nothing for the sake of Christ. See, but before we accept a call to ministry of any kind, we have to discern our motivations. A long time ago in a country far, far away, a man knocked on the gate of a monastery. You all knew I was going to bring up monks or monasteries if you know me, right? Okay, all right. You're just waiting for it. I can see it. When's he going to mention the monk? When's he going to mention it? So when the old monk opened up the gate, the man said, he stood up straight, said, I want to become a monk. And the old man, the old monk, looked him up and down. And he said, why would you want to do that? And he closed the gate. Now, I would assume that most of you here are here because you've received a call from God for some sort of set-apart ministry. Why would you want to do that? See, if you don't have the discernment to answer that question honestly, seminary education and the ministry that follows may be difficult for you. See, before we write a seminary paper or preach a sermon or pray with someone or faculty, write an academic paper or a book, we, we absolutely have to ask ourselves why we're really doing it. If it's to feel smart or to become successful or to be known for holiness or scholarship, then there's a little bit too much of ourselves still in there. In the words of Adrian von Kahn, the more we diminish arrogance, the more we grow in awe. We can't live in awe and wonder of God if we're living in awe and wonder of ourselves. And we can't live in awe and wonder if God 
if our eyes are on others, seeing if their eyes are on us. So Jesus told his disciples, now let's go somewhere else. Jesus was taking a chance that his message and ministry wouldn't be as popular somewhere else. But Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of Almighty God the Father, did not come to earth to be popular, did he? In some ways, he did the opposite. He became so reviled that the people he came to save would crucify him. And his hope was that those who crucified him would have the opportunity to be reconciled to God, have life everlasting. Dear ones, don't fall for the soul trap that is popularity in ministry. Don't seek or absorb the praise and the flattery you're going to receive. I mean, look around. How could they not think you're wonderful? I mean, go ahead, look around. Y'all are wonderful. How, how could they not say wonderful things about you? But when you receive these things, deflect them on up to God. See, one day you may find yourself becoming lifted up a bit too high by those around you. When that happens, they're spending more time talking about you than talking about Jesus. They're giving thanks to you rather than to God. And if that happens, you may discern that it's time to move along like Jesus did. After all, people need to know his name, not ours. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the call to ministry you have on our lives. And we pray, Lord, that it will always be your ministry and not ours. Lord, give us a desire to be unknown that people know who you are. That's what matters. Jesus, we are so thankful for this example that you've set for us at the start of your ministry as recorded by, by Mark. Holy Spirit, give us the discernment to know when it's time for us to move along, to know when we are receiving the praise gladly, instead of wanting people to give you the praise. Lord, be our life and our wisdom. Pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.